I will be reading from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You notice that uh, three verses were read this morning. So you're probably figuring this is going to be about 15 minutes. Sorry, not going to happen. But we're going to look at five biblical co- uh, covenants. We're going to look at uh, what is sometimes called the Palestinian covenant, coming from the Abrahamic, Davidic, and the New Covenant. And we're going to throw in the Mosaic covenant for good measure. But how do we cover all of this? And this sounds kind of dull. I mean, covenants, what is that all about? Well, let's consider. The writer to Hebrews says this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So that means that when he received the promises uh, by God from Ur of the Chaldeans, or when he was starting to travel, he never really accomplished or experienced the full completion of the promises God made to him. And I wonder if there are times when we expect God to, to work in our time frame. Like, God be soon, you've got to do it. But Abraham was actually waiting for something that would come after his earthly life. Are we able to wait like that? I guess we begin to see a little bit about the character of Abraham. What is a covenant? That's a good question. Literally, the Hebrew, karat berit, means to cut a covenant. When you see the, the phrase, to make a covenant, it literally means to cut a covenant, and it harkens back to the idea that uh, animals were slaughtered, killed, for the making of a blood covenant. As we see in Genesis 15, this is what uh, Abraham was given as instructions to fulfill and to complete this covenant that he's going to have with God. And normally, the two parties of the covenant, like a contract, would then walk between the animals so that both would know that they had their part to accomplish. One would probably establish certain parameters for the other to accomplish and to to fulfill. But God puts Abraham to sleep and then as a burning torch, he goes through the pieces of the animal's by himself. And that means that this covenant rests on God and God alone to fulfill. Nothing that Abraham does or his offspring would make a difference. He will keep this covenant. So, no matter how Abraham behaves, no matter how the generations after Abraham behaves, this covenant holds true and will be completed by the 
promise of God. From chapter 15, we jump to chapter 22. It's a pretty big jump. A lot of things have happened in between. And what we find is that Abraham is given a rather terrible command or a request, perhaps, to sacrifice his son, this son that he didn't think he could have, this son that was a miracle to him. And he takes Isaac, takes him up to Mount Moriah. And uh, Isaac is kind of confused. Where's the sacrificial animal? He says, essentially, he says, God will provide. But I'm sure his heart is extremely heavy because he, in his mind, thinks that my son, my only son, is that sacrifice. But just as he raises the knife, God sends an angel to stay his hand. And then we find that uh, he provides a ram in the thicket, a substitute for Isaac. And we, we understand the, the phrase, God will provide, as sometimes it's pronounced uh, Jehovah Jireh. The only problem with that is that there are no J's in the Hebrew alphabet. <laughs> so you can't pronounce it that way. It's uh, probably better uh, Yahweh Yireh. So now you know a little bit Hebrew. About as much as I do. So we jump 2,000 years same mountain, another sacrifice is made. This time it's God's son on Mount Moriah to take the sins of the world upon himself. Is God not the only wise God, the one who puts together plans that in a, an amazing way comes back? He gives us a little glimpse of it here in chapter 22 of Genesis. He fulfills it, as we see in the Gospels. Now, you should have a graphic something like this. It's not in color, but it's in black and white. But it gives us a picture of the Abrahamic covenant. There's three facets to this covenant. That's why we have five. Actually, coming from the Abrahamic covenant are three covenants. We can call them sub-covenants, if you like. First is the land, because in Genesis 12:1, God says, to the land which I will show you. So let's just substitute Palestinian with land covenant. That sounds probably more accurate. In this sub-covenant, found in Deuteronomy 30, the ownership of the land is unconditional. The Jews have this land unconditionally. No matter what happens, no matter what they do, it will always be their land. But the presence in the land, their presence in the land is conditioned upon their obedience and their ability to follow God's requests, commands, statutes. And that's why we see them exiled, taken out of the land, because they did not do what God required of them. We also see that he says, I will make you a great nation. That's fulfilled or given us more detail in the Davidic covenant. 
And that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We see that there's going to be a house, a kingdom, and a throne that will be part of this nation. And in that, we see that reiterated in Luke chapter 1 of all places. What we see is when the angel comes to announce the birth of the Messiah to Mary. He says that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And he will be given the throne of his father David. So the conditions, the aspects, the details of the Davidic covenant are seen fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The only one that is fit and uh, by genealogy is a rightful ruler, rightful king of Israel. And then he says, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, all the families of the world shall be blessed through the nation of Israel. How so? Through the seed of Abraham. Paul makes note that it didn't say seeds or many descendants, but one seed, singular, that is through Jesus Christ. He is the one who will bless all the world because he's the one who's going to provide salvation to the rest of the world. Now, in this new covenant, found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and beyond actually, the physical aspects of this covenant do indeed go to Israel. But the spiritual blessings and uh, ramifications of this particular wonderful covenant go to the Gentiles too. And we are beneficiaries of this new covenant. So, what's all the hubbub about this? Well, let's look at, quickly look at the prediction of the new covenant, because we're going to spend most of our time with the new covenant, because it applies to us directly. So, I thought I, would, I should look at that with you in more, de- more detail. Sorry. Prediction of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 31 to 33, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant which they broke. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. So something new is going to take place. Something that wasn't accomplishable under the older covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And we're going to look at that because there's an interesting comparison between the old and the new. But we're going to look at something that I think is part and parcel of our time under the new covenant. And it's the idea of failure. I hate to say this but, uh, and be negative, but we all fail. We do. If we're honest with ourselves, that, that seems to be our, our defining characteristic, failure. But how do we look at failure? Do we look at it and go, oh, man, I, just, I really disappointed God. I, just, oh, I shouldn't be even a Christian because I'm just such a mess. Paul had a failure too. We don't see that often. 
in the apostle's life. At least not recorded. Usually he's up there correcting Peter and so forth. But he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. What? Paul, you had an open door of ministry in Troas, and you left. He was so burdened that he couldn't find... Titus, because Titus is going to bring him news about the Corinthians, how they were doing. Did they correct this, this very sinful uh, church member? Did they take care of it? What happened? And why is he not there? Something happened. Maybe he was waylaid. Maybe he was uh, attacked. Something happened to, to, to Titus. I think there are times when our imaginations may get the better of us. Yeah, I'm sort of the you know, worst case scenario type of guy. I think of things, what is the worst case? Oh my goodness, that's probably what happened. And I'm usually surprised and relieved that it didn't happen. Praise God. He's merciful. So he leaves. That's a failure. I mean, he was, he was there for the gospel of Christ. There are people that had needed to hear him. And he left. What would he do? I mean... we would think that the next few verses would be something in which he would go, all right, yeah, I'm just a terrible person. Oh, man, I don't know why God chose me to be an apostle. It's terrible. This is what? This is how he reacts to failure. He says, but thanks be to God. Excuse me? Did I miss something between what you just said about Troas and, and right now? Dr. A.T. Robinson describes this section as the, the, the glory of the ministry. It's like a, a digression. He's talking to the Corinthians, writing to the Corinthians about um, commending them about what they did with this person that needed to be corrected. They were reluctant to do so. He finally did, and he wanted them to understand, you know, embrace this brother because he's, he's come to the point of repentance. Uh, don't make him uh, sorrow more than he should. And he's waiting for word on this by... By Titus, but he fails, and yet in this failure, he thanks God. Why? There are times when we understand that God can take failure, the worst failure, the stupidest thing, and turn it into good. That's the wonder of God. That's the wonder of believing in Jesus Christ. You have that option. You can you can turn it around. This is what he says. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. There's an undeniable impact for every Christian. And when you enter a room, sometimes uh, people will notice something different. There's going to be a reaction. Sometimes negative, sometimes positive. But there's always going to be a reaction. If you're walking with the Lord, something's going to happen. It has to. Because it's Christ in you. The hope of glory. This triumphal entry type thing is actually uh, something the Corinthians knew about. Because everybody had a, a part to play in the ministry that God had given them as a church. Some sowed, some watered. 
so forth, some reaped. But in this triumph, everybody triumphs. Those who follow the general. And the triumphal entry is something that Rome allowed a, a general who made a particular um, significant victory over the enemies of Rome to allow him to, to enter a city with a triumphal entry. Uh, apparently the Corinthians had seen one happen. So what we find is that you have the general in the front with his horses on a chariot riding through. Sometimes they'll have uh, a, a slave behind him holding a reef above his head saying, Thou art mortal. Thou art mortal. They get, you know, get a big head about uh, being entered into a triumphal entry. So reminding him he is just a man. There are prisoners that follow in this triumphal entry. Troops, then, the ones who fought well with the general. Sometimes trumpeteers, there'll be flower petals and incense pots that are burning. So there's a unique smell, a fragrance that comes about with this triumphal entry. So we have the incense burners, the flower petals, so forth. And we see this as what Paul says is the triumph of Christ, the general, that God worked through to bring about salvation, to bring about victory on every level. So, well, I, I don't know, I don't see always victory on every level. Sometimes those victories we may not see, maybe not even in this lifetime, whether or not it took place, whether or not someone trusted Christ eventually, you never know. But to lay and sow those seeds, so important. Jesus, the conqueror. We, as those who follow in the Father's triumph in his Son. And then you have this. For well, we are a fragrance of Christ to God. That's nice. And to one, an aroma from death to death. Not so nice. Why? I think there are times when, um, when they find out you're a Christian, they don't want to have anything to do with you. Oh, you're one of those. All right. Not interested. Sorry. Um, one of my uh, high school reunions I went, I reluctantly went because I wasn't sure how people would respond. And, and, you know, hadn't seen them for years, decades. And we're there in this, this pavilion and somebody came up and said, hey, what are you doing now? Are you an artist still doing drawings? Said, yeah, I still do some, but I'm a pastor now. So oh, a pastor. And he sort of Backed away, disappearing into the crowd, like, where, where did he go? I was just talking to somebody. Wow. That was not uh, fun, but that was interesting. It's like, that was an aroma for him, from death to death. Like, you know, the fact that he's facing physical death eventually, yeah, but there's something about us that perhaps turns people off, because that, our presence signifies that there's eternal death that they're going to have to face. But they don't want to hear the message. And to the other, aroma from life to life, there'll be people that are interested. And I was asked by some of my fellow students from high school, saying, you know, well, how did you make that choice? And, and so forth. One said, well, so you're a priest? I said, well, I'm a pastor. It's a little different. Um, I don't, you know, Domine Patri and I don't do that kind of stuff. But, you know, they didn't understand. So it was interesting to be able to converse with them because they were interested. And your life should provoke a certain interest one way or the other. Sometimes maybe uh, 
not so interested. How does this happen? Paul asks this question, who is adequate for these things? And we go, I am. And the answer is, no, we're not. That's the interesting thing about the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. The old covenant is, do this and live, the law commands. Okay, I'll give it a try. And there's failure written all over it. Never can you fulfill the requirements of the law. The law was never meant to save. And then there are people that take the gospel and sort of make a business out of it. Hucksters. For, he says, we're not like many peddling the word of God. This is why there's a difference about us between ourselves as the true apostles and those that come as false teachers. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Peter says this, shepherd the flock of God, he commands, among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain. This is not why you sign up to be a pastor. My mom didn't understand. That you want to be a what? A pastor? So you, you're just going to work one day a week, huh? It's like... Mom, I guess you don't know what a pastor does. <laughs> and I really didn't know what a pastor does until I got into it. I go, wow, this is awesome, but kind of scary. Not for sordid gain. But look at this guy. Yeah, you're going to have a breakthrough through this $273 seed. Your money will multiply. Yeah, send me your $273 and something good will happen to you. Yeah. Your bank account will be depleted. Not for sordid gain. But there are many who want to fleece the flock. He says, again, who is adequate? Who is adequate to live this life? Somebody said, well, the Christian's life is not hard. The Christian's life is impossible. <laughs> It's, you can't accomplish it on your own. There's no way. You can't be what Christ demands of you without Him being present and active in your life. That's the beauty of the new covenant. In the old, you had to try to do it yourself. All these things you had to obey and laws and dietary restrictions and so forth. Now you can eat pulled pork. It's okay. The answer comes in the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from who? From, from God. Who makes us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Why? Because he leads us in his triumph in Christ. The triumph has been accomplished. The battle has been won. And we follow in that triumph. And we can cooperate with that or hang by the wayside and, and miss out on this great adventure. Yeah, it's an adventure. And, you know, you've seen the, you know, different movies about various adventures, entering Jungle Cruise type adventures and things that, you know, people say, hey, it's exciting. 
Well, some of the adventure is not that exciting. Sometimes it's death-defying or something not so much fun. But the fact is, he leads us in his triumph. No matter what the failure is, he can forgive, he can cleanse, he can bring us back and start it over and say, keep going, don't give up. Man, that's good to hear. Because there are times I think we just want to, that's it, I'm done. I can't make it. I can't live up to the standard. The standard's already accomplished through Jesus Christ. You just follow in that triumph. We're servants of a new covenant. That's the spiritual side that we benefit from as Gentiles. Something that the Old Testament didn't really understand fully. Didn't reveal to us that the Jews and the Gentiles would come together. Not just be friends and waving acquaintances, but we'll become one new man in Christ. Something called the body of Christ. That whatever things blocked, that middle wall of partition that kept us from having fellowship together and seeing each other as brothers will be broken down. What a wonderful privilege to be there in the New Covenant. Interesting, he says, we, we serve not as the hucksters do, but from sincerity, as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. The word sincerity is interesting because it's a very picturesque word. Uh, the word actually can be Paraphrase, examine by the light of the sun. Okay, sincerity, light of the sun. I don't think I see the connection. There's a rather interesting story backing this up. Because there are sellers in the marketplace. Those who sell the clay pots, there were the ones who were able to give good products and those who were unscrupulous and the unscrupulous ones would sometimes take a look at their pot and go, ooh, this one has a crack. So they would then put wax into the crack and then cover it with a little bit of dust to make it hide it. So it looked like a perfectly good pot. But to see that, what you do is you hold up the pot to the sun. And the sunlight would shine through the wax. And you could see the crack. And you go, I know what kind of dealer you are. There it is. He says, we do it with sincerity. There's nothing that is hidden. We don't have hidden cracks that you'll find out later. Because Christ covers us. Christ is the one that makes us perfect. Not ourselves, because we don't have any claim to perfection. But as we do this out of sincerity, you can look at us... Yeah, warts and all, but we are in Christ, and we are sincere. We, we are not doing this for the money, we are not doing this for this reason or that reason, but for Him. So such confidence we have through Christ toward God. And we're not adequate. If, if someone told you, you're not adequate for this job, you go, okay, I guess I'm not going to be hired. But that's the very qualification you need to understand. You're not adequate, but Christ makes you adequate. That's the beauty of this new covenant. 
He also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter. Why? Because the letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. So the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was not something that could save your soul, could make you holy, could bring you closer to God. In fact, pretty much the opposite. If we look at what the, the law really is and how it functioned, we're surprised, perhaps, because people sometimes have this mistaken idea, if I just keep the, the law best way I can, God will accept me. Hopefully I'll have, I've kept more of the law than I've missed keeping. You know, like, like God grazed on a curve. Sorry, he doesn't. Straight A, complete, 4.0. Can be done. Right. Jesus said, you must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Can be done. Exactly. That's why it happens in Christ. That's the wonderful little phrase that Paul uses so often. In Christ, in Him. Why? Because we're placed in Him through spiritual baptism. We're identified with Jesus Christ. His righteousness covers us completely so that we're acceptable before the Father. Everything's taken care of. But if we just go by how much of the law we kept, not going to work. Sorry. You cannot be justified by the law, Paul says in Romans. The law gives us a knowledge of sin, but it doesn't help us get rid of the sin or cleanse us from the sin. The law increases transgression. Think about that. <laughs> Instead of being the solution to your sin, it actually causes it to increase. Why? Because of our sin nature. It's like, uh, visiting Chicago during a time that it wasn't so bad up in Chicago back in my seminary days uh, we went and saw this, this wonderful candle shop in Chicago and in the middle of the candle shop was this wonderfully made amazingly detailed owl candle I wouldn't set that one on fire you could see the feathers and everything so many layers went in to making this and then a sign in the front that said do not scratch and what do you see when you look closely at the candle? All kinds of scratches. Why? Why would you do that? Because it said don't. I, I can't help myself. It's like the forbidden fruit. Don't tell me no. Don't tell me don't because then I'm going to. It increases. That's our sin nature. That's why we need help. That's why we have Christ. Otherwise, we're, we're doomed. And the law is weak through the flesh. It cannot work powerfully and in a way that brings us closer to God. It draws us farther away. It was never meant to save us, but it's meant to show us how lost we are. So people, they go up to God and he says, Why should I let you into my, my heaven? They go, Oh, I tried my best to keep the Ten Commandments. Sorry, <coughs> wrong answer. Open the trap door. What is it? Well, some people say, there must have been a different way of salvation in the Old Testament. You know, you keep the commandments and in the New Testament you trust in Christ. No. There's only one way that you're saved. But the Old Testament said, you know, do this and live. It's always been this. For by grace you have been saved through faith 
and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by trying, not by doing, but by trusting. Comparison of the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. What? What's the difference? The old covenant is of the letter. New covenant is of the spirit. The old covenant kills. New covenant gives life. The old covenant is a ministry of death, while the new covenant is a ministry of the spirit. It's a ministry of condemnation, old covenant. While the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness. Has glory. The old covenant has glory. We saw that Moses standing in the presence of God as he communes and so forth, comes down and his face is shining. And it scares the people. So he has to put a, a veil over his head. Even when it was fading, he kept the veil on. It has glory, but it fades. That's, it's temporary. The glory is not sufficient. But the new covenant abounds in glory. The old covenant was, is fading away and it's gone. Everything under the new covenant remains. Think about this. In 3.12, the Apostle says this, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We have hope. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's good to have hope. You know, I hope for something for Christmas. As a kid, you know, I hope we have a good present. I used to love, uh, you know, cowboys and Indians. There are not a lot of Indians around where I lived in Hawaii, but and you don't want to shoot at native Hawaiians because uh, they get upset because they beat you up. Cause, and they're very really strong compared to the little Chinese guy. <laughs> we have this sure hope. And Paul says in, in Romans 5, this hope doesn't disappoint. Think of that. This hope doesn't disappoint. You'll never be disappointed with the hope you have in Christ. Think about it. What's the difference? In the Old Testament, we see all this law-keeping. And in the Gospels, it's still pretty much under the Old Covenant. Think about that. The four Gospels is still under the Old Covenant because it's not until Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit comes down, that the New Covenant really comes into effect. So, under that, you see the disciples. What a motley crew. Would the twelve disciples be the people you would choose to, to launch a worldwide evangelistic campaign you've got a zealot on one hand you've got a tax gatherer on the other two sides of the spectrum politically one will die and kill for his nation the other one is taking advantage of his own people feeding off of them and getting rich off of them what a group and you have Peter who opens his mouth and inserts foot sometimes he gets it right but lots of times he doesn't Oh, it's gonna, why are you going to betray me? Oh, we won't betray you, Lord. Oh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, I never, I'd die for you. Yeah, okay, we'll see about that. So, he's arrested. Peter follows John. He wants to kind of find out what's happening. He's there outside. A servant girl says, so weren't you with him? Oh, no. I wasn't with him. No, you got the wrong person. Three times he denies the Lord. 
the cock crows, and he, he realizes Jesus was absolutely right. What a failure. What a poor excuse of an apostle. He went away and he wept bitterly. Failure. Oh, in the garden, what happened? The mob comes, soldiers come, they arrest Jesus, and the disciples scatter, and they're hiding. That's pretty much a failure. Yet, on the day of Pentecost, what happens? The one who denied Christ gets up and preaches this powerful, courageous sermon. Think about it. Just one verse. He says this in 2.23. This man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross. You did it. Wow. Those are the people that cried out for his crucifixion. Those are the, the same leaders that got Pilate to condemn him. He points to them. You did it. Interesting. Theologically, you have the you know, predestination aspect, God's sovereignty, and you have man's responsibility. You did it. You can't blame God because, you know, that he predetermined that you would do that. You can't wiggle out of it that way. No, you're still responsible. That's pretty brave, I would think. The man who was intimidated by a servant girl now stands up and preaches to thousands on the day of Pentecost. That's the difference between old and new. With the Spirit in you, whatever God calls you to do, whatever you need to do, whatever you're gifted to do by the Spirit, you can do it. I think that is worth everything. He says this in chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There's something that makes it a little harder to witness because somehow the people in this world don't see it that clearly. We can see it. It's like so clear. Why can't you get it? Why don't you understand this? Look right here. I've, I've spoken to many cult members, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They're plentiful in Hawaii, just, just all over the place. They come to your door. Some, uh, some Christians that go, oh, I, I never answer the door when they come to the door. Why? Why not? It's a ready-made opportunity to share the gospel. But it's because they sometimes know more scripture than we do. Oh, they take it out of context and they you know, shoot out all these verses that actually have no bearing to one another, but they make it sound like it's pointing in a certain direction. They're veiled. Those who are perishing can't see it. And how does this happen? Well, in whose case it's the God of this world who's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We have a supernatural opponent. That's why you need supernatural ability. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it in the flesh. He is the tempter. He'll bring whatever he can into your path to stop you because you're too dangerous for his kingdom to continue. Because you have the ability that Christ has to rescue people from danger. The God of this world, Diablo. 
with the result so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We see it clearly. We sing about it. We praise God with song. It's so wonderful. It's so, so important to us to be able to come together, worship, to sing praises to God. But they can't see it. They can't see oh, Why should I spend my Sunday morning going and singing some silly song? Oh, it's everything. It is everything to us. It is, it's our life. It should be. This is our time as, as the body of Christ to get together and give God glory with one voice, with one accord. And then we go out. Not just to do our thing. Go out as those with a purpose, with a mission. With the gospel as earthen vessels. We have this treasure. What's the treasure? I believe it's the gospel. The context suggests it's the gospel. Chapter uh, 4, 3 and 4, and in verse 6, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. It's the gospel. We have this treasure where? Ah, in earthen vessels. Whereas Chekhov might say, earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, clay pots. Why? Why not Ming valses? No. A Ming vals looks nice. No, no, just plain clay pots because when they see us, they can't understand why we can do so much when we're just little common clay pots. But we have this wonderful treasure within. With the results so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. Think about that. When they see a common clay pot, they go, how can all this come out? Come about with this common clay pot. Because God willed it so. You have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, some have suggested a new counseling ministry called psychoceramics. It is uh, dealing with crackpots. I don't know. Maybe God will call you into that ministry. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that say, <laughs> Here I am. I'm a crackpot. The normal Christian life. Yeah, look at this. Oh, my goodness. How many times we're close to disaster and it didn't happen? Maybe disaster hit, but it perhaps could have been worse. The normal Christian life, what is it like? Oh, it's flowers and singing and wonderful things. No, sometimes not. In fact, this is what the Apostle says. We are afflicted in every way, Ooh. but not crushed. Oh, thank God for that. What is this? Think about it. We can come under great pressure to the point where it would break anyone else, but those with Jesus Christ within them will not be crushed. That's worth something. Perplexed. Oh, Ever been perplexed in the Christian life in your walk with Christ? No? Well, I've been. What's next, Lord? Um, when, I, when do I go to my next ministry? Not for a while, really. How long? Well, I can't tell you. 
Well, I'm perplexed. What in the world's going? What's going on, Lord? But he says, we're perplexed, but not despairing. Look at that. I guess that's good. Yeah, there are things that we, I don't get it. Lord, give me some insight on this. And he goes, um, later. You'll see. Just wait. It's okay. He turns perplexity into a positive. Okay, I, I trust you. That's why we're not despairing. Because we have a God we can trust. We know we're in his hands. We know that what he has for us is good. He causes all things to work together for good. Oh, then everything must be good. No, he turns it into good. Well, good does not always mean convenient. It doesn't always mean pleasurable. But it's good for the ultimate good. That's why we go through those difficult times. Affliction, perplexity. But he says, you don't have to despair. There's always hope. Just, you know, take the next day as it comes. It's a new day. Old things have passed away. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Wow. Are we persecuted in America? Are we persecuted? Yeah, we are. More so than ever. I saw this. A study done by the Center for Studies of New Religions. Of course, we're not a new religion, but Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. And it cites numerous countries where persecution exists, and it exists here. Not necessarily in the way that we see it in, in other countries, but yeah, we're under the gun. Saying you're a Christian is not going to be popular. People are not going to like that. It's okay. Wear that badge proudly. Struck down, but not destroyed. Wow. Is that part of the Christian life? Sometimes we get struck down, we're down, but not out. Ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? There's a, a, a famous line that comes from it, uh, you know, uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And I think there are times when that is true with Christians trying to communicate the gospel. But the, the, the scene that gets to me is, is when Luke, who uh, is arrested, sent to a, a prison, a, a work gang type of a prison. Yes, a, a chain gang. And he's a newcomer. And so the, the head prisoner, uh, Dragline, played by George Kennedy, who won an Academy Award for that, if I'm not mistaken, he comes in and he just doesn't like Luke. He just, you know, we're going to duke it out, go out there, put on the gloves. So they're boxing and, and Luke can't stand up to this guy. He's just way bigger. He's getting knocked down and knocked down and knocked down. And it's like, what's going on? And in the scene, he gets, wham, knocked down. But he keeps getting up. And, and in the beginning, all the men, all the prisoners are going, yay, whenever they see Luke get hit. But after a while, they're, going, they're starting to wince, like, it's too much to watch. I can't watch. It, stay down. Stay down. He's just going to knock you down again. He's, nope, I'm getting up. At that last, he tries this wild, weak punch, and drag line picks him up, carries him to the barracks. And at that point, he almost, Luke becomes the one everybody admires. 
struck down but not destroyed. We keep getting up. That's it. That's us. We don't give up. We can't give up. There's too much at stake to give up. Struck down but not destroyed. Don't let anything destroy your confidence in Christ, destroy your life. Otherwise, Satan's just on the sidelines laughing. So I got him. I got him. He could have gotten up, but he, I got him. The great exchange. Always caring about the, in the body the dying of Jesus. What? Yeah. Because when Christ died, we died too. To our old lives. All that old stuff we're supposed to be dead to. Now, we can call it up. We can continue on. But we're not supposed to. We carry about in ourselves the dying of Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. I want to die to myself, to the, the things that used to in, entrance me, used to lure me in. Those things are of the past. They're not part of me now. I don't want it. I reject it. I want to follow Christ. I know he forgives. I have to continue. He says, Romans 8, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Thanks a lot. Wow. <laughs> sheep to be slaughtered. I don't know if I like that. But what he says after that is significant. In 37 he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Always through Christ. Always to be reminded that he loves us. It's not a love that diminishes in any way, no matter what we do. It's not a love that he's going to go, okay, that's enough. You've had enough of my love. I'm cutting it off. No. It's never ending. Unconditional. That's why we can keep coming back. Sometimes I, you know, okay, confess your sin. Confess and go, I keep confessing this sin. What? He's probably really mad at me. And sometimes you think, he's probably up there going, you again? How many times do I have to, oh man. No, he's going, yes, good. Get rid of it. Let's go on. Press on. Overwhelmingly conquer. For we who live are constantly delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, yeah, death lures its, rears its ugly head at us, but that's not how we live. We don't live with the fear of death. We don't fear that. We don't fear, we shouldn't fear anything. COVID-19, don't fear it. Well, the fact is, we could get it. Some of you have. But it's of this life. The next life will not have any disease. Hey, that's something to look forward to. He wants us, people need to see Jesus Christ in us. To see the example of how we should be, how a Christian should be. You think about it, here we are. There are times when you might think, Heaven is a far place 
way off there, across a great divide. Now, most of us have come to the point, I'm sure, we have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. But if you could, you can't really think of exactly when you trusted Jesus Christ, it might be a good idea to make sure. Because essentially, we're separated, cut off by our sin. How do we span the distance? How do we get over? I mean, this is, you've seen this illustration before, but maybe not like this. The way it is breached, the way that you can get across, is because of what Christ has done. He gave us all for us because he loved us. It would seem appropriate to give our all for him. So it is us looking across saying, I now know the way. I know how to get across. And when we do, it's so much different, so much better. It's like the old life is pretty much passed away. It doesn't have to haunt us. It shouldn't inform on us. Old things passed away. New things have come. We're being renewed. Someday we'll be in heaven with him. Isn't that worth giving your life for? Saying, this is, this is where I want to be. I want to hear those hymns. I want, to, I want them to touch me in a way that it never touched me before because my relationship was a little dicey with Jesus. I wasn't sure. Now they're going to have such meaning, such power. We're going to have a couple of people come up here to pray if you wanted to pray with them to make sure. And sometimes it's okay, you know. Say, I'm not sure. I need to make sure. Or maybe you're sure that you don't know him. It's okay too. Because this is what's in store for you. All that abuse and, you know, affliction. Yeah, yeah, but triumph. Peace. Confidence. And a hope that spans this life into the next. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are wondrous God, wonderful plan that you have, seen, uh, worked out in the, the different covenants. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Thank you. But this is something that everyone should respond to. They should. It, it's such a wonderful message that it's hard to imagine anyone not wanting to be a believer in Christ, not a religion. Not something we do for ourselves and try to perform well. It is Jesus who did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I want that to be written over my life. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for the covenants that you have made through Abraham and down to us in the new covenant. Thank you, Lord. Such a blessing. Pray this in Jesus' name.